Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, that's found on page 794 if you're using the black Bibles that are provided there. We're in a series through the Minor Prophet um, book called Zechariah. He ministered to the um, returning exiles there in Jerusalem uh, just over 500 years before um, the birth of Christ. So we'll talk more about that as we dive in, but if cases you're just joining us, that's, we're about three or four weeks into the, this series through the book. So let me set the scene for us once again, uh, just so you get an idea of who Zechariah is ministering to. There in Jerusalem, the people of God were in what seemed like a hopeless situation. They had returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple so that they could once again corporately worship God and in hopes that God would once again dwell with them. But things had gone very poorly. Zerubbabel was a leader of God's people. He was the governor of Jerusalem and at this time. And we read in Ezra 3 that when the exiles first returned to Jerusalem, Zerubbabel had led the people to rebuild the altar and then rebuild the foundation of the temple. But right away in this building project, financial difficulties and staunch opposition from the Samaritans in the area had caused the project to be suspended. And so nothing happened. No progress was made for around 16 years. And during that 16 years, the people of God just became increasingly discouraged, increasingly um, they assimilated into the secular culture, and they were in, no doubt increasingly giving up hope. But then, by God's grace, after 16 years, under the preaching of Zechariah and Haggai, Zerubbabel was once again leading the people to resume rebuilding the temple. It's like they were restarting here. But the problem is they're still facing the same opposition, the same challenges, the money problems, the opposition. Now, add on to that, the, the morale of the people is even worse, right? It's very low. Like I said, many of the God's people had given up at this, by this time. Many of them had just assimilated into the culture around them. So that means now God's people are not only facing opposition from outsiders, but even from their inside, their own people. Maybe even those who are working on the temple, no doubt, are kind of doing it half-heartedly and in, in a discouraged way scoffing, doubting, complaining, saying things like, you know, what's the point? I mean, we've tried this before, right? This is never going to work. The task is too big. We've barely scratched the surface here. Look at all these problems. God's people were discouraged and they were despondent. How would they ever finish building the temple of God? Likewise, Christians today face great challenges as we follow, seek to follow Christ, as we seek to serve his kingdom, right? I mean, we could list many, many challenges, but just a few that came to my mind quickly were persecution, right? We read about that all around this world, persecution of Christians, growing cults who deny the deity of Christ. We face the challenge of an increasingly perverse and secular culture, False teaching that distorts the gospel. 
Here in the West, we face rampant materialism that easily distracts us and seeks to turn our affections away from Christ. Again, God's people in every age battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when you combine all these obstacles, we might wonder, well, will the gospel spread? Will the church of Christ even grow? And the resounding answer that we see from Zechariah 4, loved ones, is yes, God will build his church. And that's the title of our sermon today. It's very important for Christians to believe that, that God will build his church. And it's perhaps even more important for Christians, for us today, to understand how God will build his church. And Zechariah 4 will teach us these truths. So let's dive into the text. I remind you, Zechariah 4 here is the fifth in a series of eight night visions given to the prophet Zechariah, probably all on the same night, as he again ministered to the returned exiles there in Jerusalem around 520 BC. And so we, this is going to be a vision, so I need you to just kind of try to picture this in your mind's eye, okay? And we see the, the main content of that vision right off the bat here in verses 1 through 3. So look with me at verse 1. And the angel who talked with me, remember in most of these visions, Zechariah has this little buddy. <laughs> this kind of, and they call him the interpreting angel, right? He's going to be the one explaining a lot of this stuff. But, so verse 1, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, verse 2, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on its left. So what what Zechariah has seen is this lampstand, and no doubt to his hearers' minds, they would have probably immediately went to the, the golden lampstand that was... In, had been in the tabernacle and then was in the temple, right? This menorah uh, with, with seven um, arms out, right? Seven lamps. The temple, by the way, the temple lampstand and the tabernacle lampstand, it was supplied by oil from the priests. But notice that the, the lampstand here in Zechariah's vision is different. The lampstand in Zechariah 4 here has a bowl on the top of it which serves as a receptacle for the oil, for the olive oil, which is the fuel for the lamps. And then it says on each one of these lamps is seven lips. And, and what makes the vision a little tricky to, to totally picture is there's some uh, difficult Hebrew in it in a couple of places. And this is one of them. The Hebrew here is difficult uh, it's very possible that this should, would be better rendered seven channels or seven streams. And, and that's the way a lot of interpreters have taken it. it. In other words, these are providing a mechanism for the oil to travel from the bowl to the lamps. And again, some pictures I saw on the internet, it showed like seven pipes kind of, or seven channels coming down. I'm thinking there may have been 49, right? Because it sounds like there's seven on each of the seven lamps. So either way, the point is you've got this lampstand, you've got a bowl. And, and from the bowl, you've got these channels feeding the, the oil to the lamps. But notice what's feeding the bowl. 
You've got two olive trees. They're providing the oil for, ultimately, for this lampstand. The oil from the olive trees is going into the bowl through these two golden pipes. Okay? So hopefully you kind of have that picture in your mind. And like I said, the main point is clear. Unlike the lampstand in the tabernacle in the temple that had to be supplied with oil by the priests, this lampstand has this like perpetual supply of oil flowing to it from the olive trees. It kind of be like if, if your car, you know, was, was, pretend your car has a gas tank on either side of it, and it's kind of like it just has like two gas pumps or maybe even two oil rigs that are oil refinery rigs or whatever, right, that are just constantly supplying your car with unlimited fuel. <laughs> That's the picture here. And speaking of the olive trees, Zechariah asks more about them, right? Because they're obviously very important in this. They're the ones supplying the oil. So he asks about them in verse 4. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. (laughs) That's why I asked, right? (laughs) And it kind of just ends there. We're going to find out down in verse 12 when Zechariah asks again that he is specifically asking about the olive trees. That's made clear. Because, like I said, it's obvious the olive trees are playing an important role in this whole vision. So Zechariah wants to know what they represent. But here in verse 5, the angel doesn't explain it to him. So we have to kind of wait. But whatever those olive trees are, they are supplying ongoing oil to the lampstand. And now we take a little break from the vision. We're going to come back to the vision in verse 11. But now in verses 6 through 10, the angel gives Zechariah two prophetic messages. Remember, he's a prophet. He speaks for the Lord. So we're going to see the word of the Lord come to Zechariah and what he is to proclaim to the people now in verses 6 through 10. Then he said to me, verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Remember the guy who was leading the rebuilding project who had originally... Uh, had, helped, had led them to build the altar and foundation. Now he was trying to lead the rebuilding project once again. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by my power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So you see, Zacharias to tell Zerubbabel and all the Jews of that day, the temple will be rebuilt. Be encouraged. But notice, it won't be rebuilt ultimately because of the strength of the Jews or of the power of Zerubbabel's leadership. No, why is the temple going to be rebuilt? How is the temple going to be rebuilt? What does the text say? Verse 6. By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Like the lampstand supplied with resources outside of itself, Zerubbabel will rebuild the temple by the power of God's spirit. But wait a minute. What about all the challenges and obstacles standing in the way of the temple being rebuilt? What about the hostile Samaritans and the financial difficulties and and this defeatist morale? Aren't those going to get in the way of, of the temple being rebuilt? 
And true, those were great challenges facing Zerubbabel. God knows that. Look, those challenges, those obstacles are so big. Notice what he compares them to. A great mountain in verse 7 standing in the way of Zerubbabel. It's like there's this mountain of obstacles that Zerubbabel could not scale. He could not move it on his own. I called it Obstacle Mountain. (laughs) But notice, Obstacle Mountain is no problem for the Lord of hosts. Remember that title is used a lot in Zechariah? And when you see that, you think, the power of God, the God of angel armies. Look again at verse 7. I love this. It's it's like God, you know, through the prophet here, is just kind of taunting the obstacles almost. (laughs) Who are you, O great mountain? Who are you, obstacle mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. (laughs) And he shall bring forward the top stone, the finishing stone of the temple, amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So you see, God assures Zerubbabel that these obstacles will be overcome. Obstacle mountain is going to become a, a flat plain before Almighty God. Zerubbabel and the people will complete the temple. Zerubbabel himself will place that final stone, right? Doesn't that feel good when a project is done? You know, that last nail or that last whatever. Boom. It's like planting the flag, you know. Done. He's going to, Zerubbabel's going to place that final stone on the top of the temple amid shouts of, wow, we're so strong. Look at what we did, right? No. He's going to place that amid shouts of grace. Grace, this was God that did this. We know we couldn't have done it. This was God's favor. This was God's blessing. They're going to be praising God for his kindness when the temple's completed. They're going to praise him for his favor, praise him for his power, because they know it's God who made it happen. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty clear, right? They've tried and failed. Only God could have overcome those obstacles. Only God could have provided the resources they needed. Only God could have given the people the strength and the perseverance and the faith to finish the work. So you see how this is wonderful and encouraging news to us today as we seek to follow Christ and serve him. And just to reinforce it, right, God gives a second prophetic message in verses 8 through 10. A second word of of encouragement to Zerubbabel, assuring him that he will complete the temple. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also complete it. He's going to finish what he started by God's enabling. It says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Zechariah declares a message to the people from the Lord. Again, 20-something, 16 years or so earlier, Zerubbabel had laid the foundation of the temple. And now, by God's power, this same Zerubbabel is going to complete the temple. And when he does, by the way, that's going to show everyone, hey, Zechariah speaks for the Lord. It's always good to have that reaffirmed. (laughs) No false prophet here. Look at verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Plumb line can also be translated as chosen stone, and it probably 
that's, again, makes more sense to me. It probably refers to the top stone in verse 7 that will complete the building. Either way, the point is clear. I I don't know if you'd ever use a plumb line at the end. Gary can tell you about that. But the point is he's finishing it, right? He's finishing the temple. Zerubbabel has led the people by God's enabling to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And notice, there were people who despised the day of small things. They were the ones who, and maybe we could sympathize with them, but they were the ones who had been complaining and doubting because the progress seemed so slow, if any progress at all. Right? Remember, they're the ones thinking and saying and feeling, we're never going to finish this. There's too much working against us. What difference are we even making here? You know, I'm, I'm carrying a stone, I'm slapping some mortar, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying a beam or whatever. I mean, what is that in the midst of this huge temple and all this that stands in the way of us? But notice their scorn and their doubt and their complaining and their, their hopelessness is going to be turned to joy when they see the temple completed. This would have been so encouraging to Zerubbabel at this point, right? As they've just started this rebuilding, this restart. This would have been so encouraging to the rest of God's people. And then to tie it all together. The vision, the prophetic messages and all that. To to tie it all together, to make, make the point so crystal clear. God says through Zechariah at the end of verse 10. These seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. So again, he's going back to the vision, to the lamps. They're called the eyes of the Lord. That phrase is, uh, that, that range through the whole earth, that phrase is also found in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, where it talks about God's presence among his people to strengthen them. So you see how he's tying it all together? He's saying, uh, again, it's going to be built by God's Spirit, He's going to work through God's people. God is going to be with his people by his spirit, enabling them to do this work. And it will be completed by God's grace, by God's power. So, again, this vision provides great encouragement to the people who had become despondent at this point. So everything, I mean, everything's... Encouraging, right? But there's still just one question that's nagging Zechariah. What do the two olive trees represent? He asks about them again in verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Crickets. No answer. So Zechariah asked the angel again in verse 12, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? Verse 13, I mean, this is kind of funny. He said to me, Do you not know what these are? (laughs) No, that's why I'm asking you. I really don't know what these are, you know? I said, No, my Lord. Verse 14, then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The angel finally identifies the two olive trees as, notice uh, the ESV has a a footnote there. It's literally in the Hebrew, two sons of new oil. The translators 
did a little um, interpretation, you know, on their own. It's called it two anointed ones. But I think in a way that obscures the meanings uh, slightly because uh, uh, someone who's anointed is receiving the oil, but these are giving the oil, right? So you could keep it two sons of new oil. They're providing, they're producing the oil. And that, by the way, correspond, is consistent with the, uh, Job 5-7 where it talks about two, uh, or sorry, not two, but sons of a flame who they're the ones providing the sparks that produce a flame. So who are these two sons of new oil producing, providing the oil, so to speak, the fuel? Well, some commentators think they symbolize Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, right? And, and in a way, that would make sense, I guess, because those are two leaders of the people, and they've been talked about in recent chapters. We talked about Joshua, the high priest, last week in chapter 3. Now we're talking about Zerubbabel here in chapter 4. But others believe that these two stand for Haggai and Zechariah, remember, who are ministering right there at the same time, the two prophets who are proclaiming the word of the Lord, and again, the, we can't be for, for certain because the Bible doesn't ever explicitly identify. But I personally believe in the, the latter. I believe a strong case could be made for these two trees representing Haggai and Zechariah. Notice it says they, the phrase, they stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That, that easily could be talking about the privileged position of the prophets had Right, getting, you know, being in the council of the Lord, standing, uh, being their, the Lord's spokesperson. Certainly, the Old Testament often connects the work of the Spirit with prophecy, right? And that's what this vision's been talking about. It's done by my Spirit, through my Word. The reconstruction, another reason that it could. I think it stands for Haggai and Zechariah. The reconstruction of the temple is attributed to Haggai and Zechariah elsewhere in Ezra chapter 5 and Ezra chapter 6 and even later here in Zechariah 8. By the way, if you're, you know, as we're studying through Zechariah, you might want to be reading Ezra. It kind of provides a nice commentary, kind of a nice background to this. Another reason that would point toward this interpretation, Revelation chapter 11 verses 3 and 4 kind of reuses this vision depicting two prophets as olive trees. So that's pretty convincing. And like I say, it kind of flows, I think, with the the chapter here, connecting the vision with the prophetic messages that God is giving Zechariah there in the middle. But either way, the, the point is still basically the same, right? It's God who's doing this. But the reason I like the interpretation of the of pointing toward the prophets is God is doing this through his word, through the spirit taking his word and strengthening his people. And certainly the Bible teaches that, that beautiful truth many places. So to recap the vision here, the chapter really, the Jews rebuilding the temple faced a mountain of obstacles and again, they're, at this point, they're asking themselves, how are these obstacles going to be overcome? They, 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 they did a sin before. What's going to be different? Well, God himself is going to overcome those obstacles. God's going to do it by his spirit, through his prophets, preaching the word to them. 
And as Haggai and Zechariah proclaimed God's word, God was at work by his spirit, moving the people to obey, to go forward in faith, depending on the Lord, so that the temple was rebuilt. Do you see how this applies to us today, loved ones? Since the coming of Jesus, God is, has built his temple, the church, right? We... we Talked, saw that in our call to worship, 1 Peter 2. We saw it in our scripture reading, Ephesians 2. How has God done that? The exact same way. By the proclamation of his word, in the power of the spirit. We heard from Ephesians 2 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, of the this temple, this spiritual house that God is building. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that foundation. And he's building upon it by his spirit, verse 22, Ephesians 2 said. And so as God's word is proclaimed in the power of the spirit through preaching, teaching, witnessing, reading, discipling, evangelizing in your home and at work, as God's word, God's word is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, in the gatherings of the church, in the home, in this world, God is building his church as that happens. The Spirit of God is taking the word of God and giving new life to dead hearts, right? That's how he builds his church. He, we were talking about that in Sunday school. He, he, he gives the new birth. He... he he replaces dead hearts with living hearts that embrace Christ by faith. And then when someone is saved, they become, what 1 Peter 2 says, a living stone. They become part of this church, part of this great temple that's being built up to the glory of God. Each person who believes becomes part of the church God is, that God is building to the praise of his glory. And so if you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, then, you know, I mean, just to, to use the imagery that we see here in Zechariah 4, just know that you have a mountain before you, right? The Bible talks about you have a mountain of sin, a sin debt before you that you could never pay. You have a mountain of, of uh, I don't know what you would call it, a mountain of righteousness <laughs> that you need in order to be with God forever. And this is true of every one of us. Right? And it's a mountain that on your own you have no hopes of scaling. God is a holy God and he must, must punish sin. And, and sin is not allowed to dwell in his presence. And by nature we are all sinners. And so our only hope of being with God forever is to have God himself remove that mountain. And that's what Jesus did. That's why this, the, the Son of God became a man. So that he would live a perfect life in our place and then die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin in the place of sinners like you and me. And, through his, and then three days later rise again in victory over sin and death. And so through his life and death and resurrection, all who are united to him, all who turn from their sins and, and by faith embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, that, that mountain is removed and you are made right with God. Again, it's something you can never do on your own. It has to be done by God's Spirit through the Word of God. 
And so I, I urge any of you today who don't know him to, to call out to Jesus in faith. And if we can be of any help to you with that, please let us know. We'd love to sit down, pray with you, show you from Scripture, talk about it more. God is, is building his church. God is rescuing sinners like you and me from the domain of darkness, from an, a, a path that's leading to an eternity of separation and, and punishment. He's rescuing us from that, and he's placing us in his church for his glory as we await the return of Christ when we'll be with him forever. God is building his church by his spirit through his word. Not only in in saving people, not only in converting them and, and making them be those living stones, but the Bible is clear he also builds his church by taking in those stones and sanctifying them. Taking us who he's rescued and making us more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the way God builds his church. Through saving and sanctifying his people. Through cleansing his bride. Getting us ready for his return. So be encouraged about that. As the word of God is preached, as it's taught, as it's read and memorized, the spirit is at work in the lives of believers. Empowering them to to put off sin and live fruitful lives by the, the Spirit bearing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, serving Christ, following Him. A phrase that kept coming to me as I you know, was studying this chapter and preparing the sermon was one I would hear in seminary from some of my professors. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and does the work of God. We could add to the glory of God, right? God is building his church, praise God. How is God building his church? That's how. The spirit of God takes the word of God and does the work of God in our lives and in the lives of the lost around us. Yes, the church faces many challenges today. I I mentioned several earlier. And those challenges can seem like... uh, Mountains of obstacles, certainly more powerful than we can overcome. But the Lord of hosts can overcome it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's word and the power of the spirit will accomplish his purposes. He can rescue anyone who's in bondage to sin. He can sanctify any believer who is abiding in his word. So I close with two applications for us today. And really, application might even be too weak of a word. We could call it two commitments, two resolutions that we need to make as a church. Number one, we will rely on the Spirit and not on our own power. Right? As we ourselves are the church and as we're seeking to be used by God to build his church, what, need, what do we need to be reminded of? What needs to be the, the truths that guide us? Well, here's one of them. We've got to rely on the spirit and not on our own power. How is a person saved? <laughs> Again, we were talking about this in Sunday school. We can't, make, we can't save a person. 
We can't save our loved ones. We can plead with them and, and we give them the word, certainly, and we pray and, and try to live it out before them, but it has to be God. God by His Spirit, working through the Word. God is the one who gives the new birth. He's the one who renews the mind. Like it says in John chapter 1, we're born not by the will of man, but by God. How will we grow? How can we overcome uh, sinful habits? How can we flee temptations? How can we grow and become a more godly husband or wife or parent? How can we uh, become a disciple maker, right? How can we uh, be faithful to to lead our kids, to to teach them the word of God, to witness to our, our unsaved co-workers and neighbors? There's a lot of obstacles, right? There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of maybe hostility. How can we do that? By the power of the Spirit. And so... We must be bathed in prayer, right? We need to be praying and praying as we take the word. It's not going to be by our might. It's not going to be by our power. It's not going to be by our gimmicks that build the church. It's going to be by the Spirit of God taking the word of God and doing a work for his glory. And so that should give us hope encouragement. It should give us confidence and, and, and some boldness. So let's, let's expect God to do great things for his glory. Let's, let's try hard things so that it's clear that it's God who's done it so that we can cry out when the person is saved and, and cry out when we see people growing in their marriages and in, in their walks with the Lord. Grace, grace, this is God who's done it. This wasn't self-improvement. This wasn't some kind of human manipulation. No, this was a work of God. As the one another's, as Todd was praying earlier, as we see the one another's lived out in the body, uh, each member doing its part and speaking the word of truth and encouraging one another in the word and in their service, the body grows and is made strong. It's God who does that. Secondly, And this is the last one I'll share. Let us not despise the day of small things, or we could say it. We will not despise the day of small things, but be faithful and thankful. I was really struck and encouraged by that phrase, you know, the day of small things. Remember, that's how it seemed to the people there in the midst of that, facing the obstacles. They were overwhelmed, right? And they were discouraged, and doesn't it seem like that often in our Christian life? Man, this is, just, this is just a small thing, right? I mean, it's just a small thing to read the Bible with my family after dinner. You know, and half of them are, are not wanting to be there, and they're, you know, they're getting distracted or whatever, and, you know, oh, great. Oh, but we ask, we pray, God, please help, help me. Give me wisdom and <laughs> how long I, you know, hold this meeting, and, and, and give me patience and love. But, but Lord, we're going to read your word. We're going to pray in faith. Yes, it seems like a small thing when we're, when we're getting together and, and trying to read the Bible with, with a fellow believer. It seems like a small thing when we get together and pray. It seems like a small thing when we go into our own prayer closets every day and meet with the Lord, when we read our Bibles, and when we pray. Those seem like small things, right? 
That maybe it seems like a small thing when we, you know, come to church and, and we're just, you know, just kind of doing the same thing in a way, right? But they're good things. And God works through those good things for his glory. So, in faith, let us abide in the word of God and abide in Christ and have his words abide in us. And again, saturate it in prayer. So that's why I say, we will not despise the day of small things, but let us be faithful by God's enabling. Remember, he is there with us. He's with you as you seek to witness to your neighbor. He's with you as you're training your kids again and again. Maybe after, you know, some form of correction or or discipline or whatever, right? But then you bring in the gospel. He's there with you. And his word is going to accomplish his purposes. He's there with you as you you, um, humbly come before the word of God and you're you're asking God to examine your heart. Lord, what, show me my faults. Show me the sin. Show me the idols of my heart that I know I have and I struggle with. He's there with you, helping you. So let's be faithful to abide in Christ. Take advantage of the means of grace. Remember, it, he does it by his spirit through his word. Let us come together and worship. Let us take in the word of God every way we can. Let us be faithful and let us be thankful. When, we, when he lets us see some fruit, when he, when he lets us see some, some progress, when we see another brick get laid or we see you know, a little bit of, of, of the dross getting burned off maybe in our own hearts or the hearts of someone else that we're discipling, Let's be thankful. Let's rejoice. And again, I'm preaching to me as much as I am to you because I can easily be like those Jews of that day, right? Oh, you know, the work's not going fast enough or, or you know, we've got all these obstacles or, uh, you know. And what happens when you grumble like that is you don't see what God is doing. You miss it. And so... We, That's part of not despising the small things. Part of it is being faithful in the small things. And then it's being thankful. Continuing to be thankful for what God is doing. That he's even letting us see. And then knowing that he's doing a lot of stuff we don't see. I know as the church, we face many challenges. And it's easy to be discouraged and feel like nothing is happening. But remember... God is building his church. God is with us, working through his word, empowering us by his spirit. So let us rely on him. Let us seek to be faithful. And may we be used by God. May he establish the work of our hands for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we just, from the outset, we want to proclaim and shout out, grace, grace. Lord, we think of what you've done in in our lives. We think of the, the mountain that separated us from God because of our sin. And how you remove that by your grace and by the finished work of Jesus Christ and by the regenerating work of your Holy Spirit. Oh, we praise you and thank you for that. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for 
including us in the body of, of Christ and, and in your church, that your spirit would dwell among us, that we would get to be this place that, that together worships you and serves you and where your glory dwells. And Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for your church. And, and we know it's not just Zach, Zachariah and Haggai anymore. And you indwell and gift each one of your people. Lord, each one of us has the Spirit and has a ministry of the Word. Sowing into our own hearts and sowing into our families and those around us here in the body of Christ. Please strengthen us, empower us, give us faith. Help us to just be faithful in the daily things. The daily times of dwelling with you, the daily forsaking of sin, the daily, uh, the daily uh, declaring our dependence on you. Oh God, we need you. Please forgive us when we've tried to do things in our own strength. Maybe it was simply by forgetting to pray or trying to control things. God, we know this is not going to happen by our strength. Not by our might, but by your spirit. And we praise you for the work you're doing here at Abounding Grace, here in our community, and around this world. Give us eyes to see what you're doing. Help us be thankful and faithful. And we're so encouraged to know that nothing is going to thwart your plans. That Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that one day when he returns, it will be completed. The last of your elect will have been saved and and we will be, uh, our sanctification will be uh, completed. We'll be glorified and be that spotless bride and be with our Savior. And then we will once again shout out, grace, grace. For all eternity will be trophies of your grace. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Please continue to work among us. Establish the work of our hands for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Sing a song of praise.